0: As you remember, we are in a series in which we're walking through the book of John. The purpose and the goal of the series is to get to know Jesus a little better. We're going to continue that journey all the way up until Christmas time. And I wanted to remind you, since we didn't get to do the series last week, I wanted to remind you of the verse that is kind of driving the entire gospel and hopefully our series as well. The verses toward the end of the gospel, John chapter 20 at verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why was the gospel of John written? So that we might believe that Jesus is the is the Christ, the Messiah. He goes on, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. As we get into this morning's text, I want to encourage you to remember that's the point of the gospel, that we might believe that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God, and that by believing... We may have life in his name. Remember as well that John never uses the noun belief. Yeah, I thought that was interesting when I discovered that in, in preparing for this series. He never uses the noun form belief. It's not just a, a set of truths that you have to believe that, that you have to accept. It's, it's not factual. He always uses the verb. That you may believe, that you may put your trust in, depend on, rely on, that you may have life in his name. With that in mind, we turn this morning to the chapter that is most familiar to you and to the rest of the world, by the way, John chapter 3, in which he says, you must be born again. We're going to look at what that means. And I want us to very carefully look at this this chapter that means so much to so many. We're going to break it down and go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, through the first 18 verses. Let me me read those to you as we begin our time. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. "...bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man." And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, through, that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now let's look at it very carefully. In verse 1, we're introduced to Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, let's take a minute and think about this Nicodemus guy. I want us to think about who was he. First, understand this was a good guy. You and I have grown up after the New Testament was, was printed, published, and available. So you and I grew up hearing Jesus accuse the Pharisees, rightfully so, of their hypocrisy of their lack of understanding. So we now have kind of a negative view of the Pharisees. But understand, in that day, in that culture, these were the good guys. These were the guys who cared enough about God and His Word that they built their entire lives around His Word. God said, here are some laws I need you, I want you, I, do, I require of you to live by, basically, these ten rules. The Pharisees said, we want to be so sure that we are right with you. We want to be the best people we can be. So we're going to build on those ten laws and we're going to apply them to various areas in life. And as they did that, they wound up coming up with over 600 rules and regulations that were put together to help people be right with God. Understand their motive was to be right with God. Not only was this a good guy, he was a religious guy. As a Pharisee, he worshipped regularly. He tithed everything. He was He was involved in the life of the temple. We would say he went to church. If they had life groups, he was in a life group. He was actively involved. I want us to understand, this was a good guy. He did good things. He thought the right way. He was actively involved in his church. He even taught the Bible. He was a Sunday school teacher, kind of. He was well-respected in his community. They didn't see him as a power-hungry, mean guy like we see Pharisees. They respected him. And with all of that, good guy, church guy, respected with all of that, He knew something was missing. And because he knew something was missing, he came seeking. He came to Jesus looking for it. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the things you do unless God is with him. He came looking for something. And notice that it says he came by night. Now, I, I don't take that to mean just that he came at night like it is translated in the, the NIV. I, I take that preposition by in a different way. I think what he's saying is he came using night as the method of getting there. You say, that's awful complicated. Look at it like this. You're going to take a trip to New York. Are you going to go by car or by plane? See how I used the word by? The means by which you're going to go? That's the way this preposition is used. It reminds me of the old poem, The, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. You remember? They're going to come and, and he's going to signal them. It'll be to if by, what is it, land. One if by sea, I may have that backwards, it doesn't matter. Coming by the land or by the sea, it's the way he came. Not just that he came at night, but he depended on the darkness of night to be the way in which he could arrive. Because being the Pharisee, he knew that it would cause great trouble if he risked being seen talking to this new rabbi. We've got folks throughout our community, throughout our nation, and throughout the world who realize that if they take a chance of taking Jesus seriously, they risk what others might think of them. Nicodemus took the risk Yes, he came at night. But where were all the other Pharisees who could have come the same way? He took a risk. He came to Jesus saying, something's missing and I know you've got it because I see all the things that you do and nobody could do what you do unless they came from God. And he's almost right. It's true, nobody could do the things Jesus did unless they came from God. But it's only partly true. The full truth is that Jesus didn't come from God to man. He is God who came to man. Poor Nick didn't quite get it completely, but he sure is trying. It's not just that Jesus came from God, it is that he is God John tells us the whole book is written so that we may believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. Nicodemus says, I see what you do. And because I see what you do, I know there's something special about you. And Jesus answered, isn't that interesting? Verse 3, Jesus answered, I didn't hear a question, did you? Jesus heard the question. When Nicodemus says, I I know that you're from God, Jesus knows what he's saying is, I know I'm missing something from God. I go to church, I tithe, I work, I'm respected in the community, I'm a good person, I do all the right things. And yet, I know I'm missing something. And Jesus hears the question. Remember, Jesus knows the hearts and, man, hearts and minds of everyone, including you. He knows the hearts and minds of everyone. And He hears the real question, what am I missing? And verse 3, He answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus had claimed, I know that you're something special from God because I see what you do. And Jesus says, yeah, but you don't see everything you need to see until you're born again. You won't even be able to see the kingdom of God. You won't even be able to see what this is all about until you are born again. And there is that phrase, born again. In our culture, that phrase has been twisted, misused, and abused so often that it now takes on political connotations. Born again Christians, they must be right-wing conservatives. That is an absolute heresy that started by ignorant Media that, and not ignorant, stupid, ignorant, just not informed media. And now politicians themselves have picked up on it. Right wing does not, or or born again does not mean right wing. Born again means Christian. You cannot be a Christian unless you're born again. There's no other kind of Christian. How do I say that? I don't. Jesus did. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In just a moment, he's going to say very, very plainly, you must be born again. Well, it's no wonder Nicodemus got confused by that. What in the world are you talking about? I'm an old dude. How can I be born again? I can't get back in mama's womb. What what do you mean I must be born again? Nicodemus says in chapter 4, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And there is the, the, the key to understanding what it is to be born again. He said, you have to be born of the water and the spirit. When my daughter Ashley was having her baby, there was all this big discussion. If her water breaks at this time, we'll do that. If her water breaks at that time, we'll do that. And that's about all I understand, and I'm very comfortable in my ignorance. What I did understand was that there is water involved in the physical birth of a baby. You have to be born of the water, physical birth, and you have to be born of the spirit. There is a spiritual birth that takes place. You're born physically, you become a human being. But within you, there is the potential of a spiritual life that lasts forever. But unless you are born again, born spiritually, then that life, that spiritual life never develops. You have to be born of the water and born of the Spirit. In the cemetery by St. Mary's Church in Everton, there is a gravestone where John Berridge was buried. When he died, he was the pastor of that church, although in the Church of England, the pastor is called a vicar. And on his tombstone, you can go today and read these words. Here lies the earthly remains of John Barrage, late vicar of Everton. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without the new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716, remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730, Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754. Admitted to Everton Vicarage, in other words, he became a pastor, 1755. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. Fell asleep in Christ, January 22nd, 1793. His testimony on a stone. His testimony is Nicodemus' testimony. I was was a good guy. I followed the rules. I went to church. I was a church leader. I was a preacher, a pastor. And then I realized I needed Jesus. Let me get real personal. The day you were born, What did you do to make sure you were born? There was a lot of work going on at your birth. Somebody was suffering. Somebody was working really hard to make sure you were born, but it wasn't you. You could do nothing to make sure you were born. The same thing is true spiritually. Going to church your whole life doesn't ensure that you're born again. Believing, teaching, even preaching doesn't ensure that you're born again. Just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth, you have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It is by grace alone. As soon as you take Jesus and then you add all the churchy stuff, all the rules, all the regulations, all the have-tos, you have immediately canceled out the gospel. Because the gospel is a gospel of grace. You are saved by grace, Paul says. You are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. You can't do it, friends. And I love you enough to tell you, all the good stuff you're doing makes you Nicodemus, but it doesn't make you a child of God. So let's find out how it does work. Okay? Let's keep going. John uh, in verse four, Nicodemus says, how, "How how do I get? How does this happen? How can I be born again?" In five, Jesus says, "You're still thinking physically. I'm telling you, there's a spiritual thing. One is a physical birth, but I'm talking about a spiritual birth." Verse six: "That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit." Now, verse eight. I'm sorry. Uh, verse seven. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You look outside and you say, man, this wind is blowing. Was Was that yesterday, I think? Yeah, yesterday we had a conversation. Look at how this wind is blowing. You know what? You didn't see the wind you saw the results of the wind, right? We don't see air move. We see the results. We see the leaves move. And we see the yellow paint out of the paint can kind of spray out as we try to... You see the results. And Jesus says the same thing is true spiritually by the way in in the biblical languages Hebrew and Greek spirit and wind are very similar the same word slightly changed based on context spirit and wind are often the same word and so here he says just like the wind blows but but you only know it because of the result the same thing is true spiritually you can't see the spirit move in your life but you can see the result. When God moves in your life and and you are born again, your priorities change. Oh, I still want to do the right thing. I still want to go to church. I still want to do the stuff I've been doing. But now I want to do it for a different reason. Now I'm not doing it to try to earn my way into heaven. Now I'm doing it because I love Jesus so much I want to show him that I love him. Now I do it because I recognize He's in charge. He's the Lord. He's my Master and I'm serving Him because I just I want to serve Him. My priorities change. I can't see the Spirit, but I can see the results. I can look at so many lives in the room today and point out I can see the Holy Spirit's been working as I've seen the results of His work in your lives. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The results show that you've been born again. That the Holy Spirit is changing you and working in you. Things are different. Back in our chapter, Nicodemus says to him in verse 9, How can these things be? I don't get this. Jesus said, You're the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things. The teacher of Israel, you should be familiar with that story in Ezekiel, where there's dead, dry bones everywhere, and and, and this wind comes, this mighty wind comes over, and they all come alive. He said, it's the same thing I'm talking about now. Without Jesus, we are walking dead people, spiritually speaking. But when the Holy Spirit comes in and quickens us, that word means to make alive. He makes us alive spiritually. We're born again. And now we're spiritual beings, alive. And that life, by the way, lasts forever. He says, you you should know this, man. You should be able to see it. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, all your good works, all your deeds, all your your stuff is not going to get you there. You're trying to build that ladder to heaven. And every time you do a good deed, you think you're adding a rung. And every time you teach another story, you're adding a run. And, and, and And the truth is, you can't build it from... Bottom up. The only way we get there is from the one who came down from heaven. We trust in Him completely. We verb believe completely. And He makes us something new on the inside and then we get to live with Him forever. Look at verse 14. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Fantastic story. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness, they disobey God again. Because they disobey God, God allows these snakes to come into camp. And these snakes are deadly. Snake bites you, you die. Finally, the people go to Moses and they say, Moses, talk to God, please. Tell him we're sorry, forgive us, heal us, protect us. Get us away from the snakes. Moses goes to God on behalf of the people. God says, here's what you do. You you make a bronze snake. Put the snake on top of a pole. Hold the pole way up high. Then whenever somebody gets bit by a snake, all they have to do is look up at the snake on the pole, and they'll live. By the way, that's where The whole medical field gets their image. You know, you've seen the the cross and the snake on the... That's where it comes from. It's a sign of healing. And sure enough, as the people would get bit by those snakes, they would just look up at the snake on the pole and they would live. And now Jesus says, just like they lifted up a snake on a pole and people could look and live... So must the Son of Man be lifted up. And not long after He said that, that's exactly what happened. They lifted Him up and they put Him on a pole. And to this day, when people will really, honestly look and see His love for them on Calvary, their lives are changed. They're born again. And so he says, just like like the bronze snake on a pole, I have to be lifted up. And when people start to look at me, things change. Verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the early 1800s, Charles grew up in a Christian home. He never cared much about it, never thought much about it. It wasn't very personal for him. One Sunday in 1850, he was walking to church. He was 15 years old. And this terrible snowstorm hit. He couldn't see. It was hard to get around. Nobody could travel. He realized he he didn't want to have to try to make it through all the way to his church. He saw this little primitive Methodist church over here, and the door was open. So he went into that little Methodist church. pastor wasn't there that day because he couldn't make it because of the storm. Instead, a layman stepped into the pulpit Later, Charles said, I, I could tell that he wasn't a preacher because he wasn't very good and he was kind of stupid. But that layman stepped into the pulpit and he read Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look unto me. And be ye saved. For I am God and there is none else. Not being a trained preacher, all the man knew to do was kind of continue to say that over and over again. Look unto me. Look unto me. And then he said, he looked at Charles, being the only young person in the room, it was clear that he was a stranger. And the guy who was preaching said, young man, you look very miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey my text, if you, uh, it, it, or miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look. You have nothing but to look and live. And he did look, and it changed his life immediately and forever. He left that church a new creature, went on to become the greatest preacher in modern history. They call him the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. And so Jesus says, just like they put that snake on a pole, they're going to do that to me. And those who look find life. We sang just a moment ago, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see His wounds, His hands, His feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. Look and live. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I've got a lot more planned in the message, but no more time. So we got to stop here. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. I've been saying that verse like you have my whole life. I've been saying that verse. I've been knowing that verse since I was old enough to know how to talk. And it wasn't until this week that something struck me. It was as if the Word jumped off the page and slapped me upside the head and said, wake up. Look at it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son And for the first time, I realized that the word does not say he sent his son. I can send you to the store and I expect you to come back. But he gave. Once I give, it's yours. He loved us so much. That He gave His one and only Son. The rest of us can be adopted into the family eventually, but there was only one Son of God. And God the Father gave Him that He might become the Lamb of God. The one pure, complete sacrifice for all sin. Why does it work For the people of Israel to look at a bronze snake and live, I don't have a clue. Just because God said so. Why does it work for man to look at Jesus on a cross and live? It works for this reason. Because you have a sin problem. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have a sin problem. And our sin keeps us from God. You can't live in a holy place and drag your filth into it. So what do we do? The Bible says that the way you take care of sin is sacrifice. And then the Bible says that God loved you so much that He... Gave His Son to be that sacrifice. He dies on a cross to pay the penalty of sin. And you and I experience that forgiveness when we look to the cross and say, Jesus, I need You. I believe. I don't accept facts, but I Believe. I trust you. I need you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life.